This morning we begin what our friend Eslis Johnson calls the last of last things. Nearly all of you have heard it said that there's more in the Bible about hell than there is about heaven. And there's a sense in which that's right. There are more warnings about eternal separation from God than there are admonishments about heaven, encouragements toward heaven. But the truth is, the details that we have about eternal separation are rather sparse. But the details about heaven fill these last two chapters of God's Word that we begin this morning. The promises of heaven are detailed in glorious, wondrous fashion, and they are intended to give us a sense of great hope. And so we arrive this morning at the place that we have longed to be, the place in which God finally, in the fullest sense, accomplishes His grand plan and grand purposes. That will bless us as well. So with that in mind, let's read together God's Word. You follow along as I read, please. In Revelation, let's begin in chapter 20, Revelation 20, beginning with verse 11 the text that Pastor Dave preached last week, and we'll read down into chapter 21. We're reading in Revelation chapter 20, beginning verse 11. As we always do, we remind you this is God's word for us today. Revelation 20, verse 11. John says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But note the contrast. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Father, we come to your word with a palpable sense of helplessness this morning. These wonders are beyond our ability to understand and therefore to talk about. 
But these promises are meant for our encouragement, our challenge, our stability, and our strength. They are meant to give us hope. Do that work through the Holy Spirit in your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we have told you over the last several months, time can really be divided into three grand ages, at least since creation. We are living now in what we call the present age, and we've described the aspects of this present age. We all know it and experience it. Satan is active, and the creation, it groans under the curse that came about because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. So everyone who has ever lived, apart from the Lord Jesus himself, everyone who has ever lived is born under the curse, is born sinful, is born guilty because of our first parent's sin, and then eagerly embracing that disobedience in our own lives. This is the present age. And right now, though believers have died over the course of thousands of years, their spirits are in glory, and they are awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. And so they are in the presence of God, if they are forgiven indeed, but they await resurrection. This is the current state of the believers, the saints, the people that we love that have already died. They are in the presence of God in their spirit, but they do not have a body. They are awaiting the resurrection of their body during this present age. But we've also seen that according to all of the promises in the Old Testament and the statements that Jesus made and the promises that he made in the teachings of the New Testament, there will be coming a kingdom age. And this kingdom age will be a thousand years. And during that kingdom age, Satan will be bound and the curse will be mitigated in some way. And on the earth at that time, there will be resurrected saints. All of us, if we have died before this time or if we were alive at the time of the rapture, we will have received resurrected, glorified bodies, bodies like the resurrected body of our Lord Jesus. We believe also that there will be on the earth during that kingdom age mortals who were born of believers, and then they have an individual responsibility to come to faith in Christ who is the king reigning on earth at that time. That thousand-year reign will be a glorious time where the curse will be mitigated in significant ways, but death will still be a problem. For those mortals, sin will still be a problem, and there will still need to be a sense of salvation and deliverance during that promised kingdom age. But then the third age, It begins in our text this morning, and it is the promised eternal age. And what this text tells us and what we find in the last two chapters of our Bibles is that evil will be banished, and the creation will be renewed. And the only inhabitants of that eternal age will be the holy angels and all of the saints from all of time who have lived and they died and they were resurrected and now they live eternally in glorification. And that status in and of itself is something that we don't think about enough. Remember Adam and Eve were created and we say they were created in innocence. They did not know sin until they disobeyed. Well, we will be finally, eternally, we will not merely be innocent like Adam and Eve, but we will be confirmed in eternal righteousness. We will be sealed in righteousness in our glorified bodies, never to sin again. The present age, the coming kingdom age, and the promised eternal age. And this is what we 
usually call heaven. This is the terminology, this promised eternal age. We use a shorthand term that all of us understand, but sometimes we don't use it clearly enough, this promise of heaven. And while it's legitimate to acknowledge that our departed loved ones who were believers in Jesus are in a sense they are in heaven now, in the sense that God resides in heaven, there is a promise of a new heaven that we're going to see in the text that will be our eternal home And it is different from that heaven where our loved ones currently are. They will be with us, assuming they have had faith in Christ. So this is about heaven. And you've heard the old spiritual, right? Everybody talking about heaven, nobody wants to die, right? And I wonder if that's not an issue for us today. I wonder if it's... it's, not true that sometimes we experience a diminished passion for heaven. I I wonder if sometimes we love this world too much. This world has become too much of our home. And the promises of heaven pale in our value because we have vested so much love and devotion to idols here in this world. It's a challenge that we should consider, it seems to me. The comforts that we enjoy, they're unimaginable to many of our forebears. I mean, we live a life of joy. We live a life of technology. We live a life where, as we're going to see in a moment, we we love purchasing and experiencing, purchasing new things and having new experiences. Many of the believers throughout the course of history live lives of deprivation and lives of trial and lives of toil, literally not knowing where their next meal would come from, you can guarantee that they looked forward to heaven in ways that sometimes we don't. These seven churches that are addressed early in the book of Revelation and believers all throughout history and believers in much of the world today The message I'm going to preach this morning was the fuel that gave them encouragement and hope every single day. And sometimes in our comfort and in our idolatries, sometimes we are apathetic about the glorious, glorious truths that we find in our text. And I think that's likely because we are forgetting important information about the nature of heaven, the nature of glory. I think our images of heaven have become stiff and stilted. Sometimes our image of heaven is very narrow and often misleading. And that's the reason it's good for us to go to the Word this morning and to be reminded what has God promised us about our eternal home. So we need to see what happens when Jesus finally makes all things new. Would you look back at the text with me for just a moment? Look, for example, at the end of verse 4. Part of what's happening here and what will happen once the present age morphs into the kingdom age and the kingdom age ends, what happens here is that the former things, you see the end of verse 4, the former things have passed away. It's fascinating that scholars tell us that in the ancient Near East especially, but really in all comparative religions, if you compare religions, in all religions there is this sense, nearly all religions, there's this sense that one day the world is going to get fixed. The one day there's going to be either a refashioning, or there's going to be a destruction, or there's going to be a recreation. It's in all kinds of religious systems. And why would that be? 
Well, the first reason is because it's a reflection of God's ultimate truth. But the second reason is because, and if you'll pardon me, I'll say this the way my West Virginia forebears would say it, all of us know this ain't right. The stuff around us, it just ain't right. The way things go, the way too often injustice prevails. Too often justice doesn't seem to be exacted with fairness. Too often the evil prosper. Too often the righteous are marginalized. And we look around and then we look at our own lives and we look, it doesn't seem, why would God create a good world? And then about the time we get to the place where we think we can enjoy it, we get old and die. It doesn't seem right. And the truth is, the former things one day, finally, the former things will have passed away. Look down in verse 5. This is the promise. The one who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is only the second time in the book of Revelation that God the Father speaks. He speaks from the throne and he says, I am making all things new. The goal toward which God ordains all things. This is where we're headed. This is the storyline of Scripture. And it's this. Watch this because you don't think of it this way. The ultimate destiny as God's people is earthly. We think of heaven, we talk of heaven as though it's some ethereal existence that's up in the sky somewhere. But what Revelation 21 and 22 make clear is that God's plan is for us to live eternally in a glorified creation that is here on earth. An earth that is remade, an earth that is drastically different from the one we know now, but nevertheless has evidences and connections with our lives as we experience them now. Now, this is a great mystery. I won't be able to answer all of your questions about that. But I think we often, we, we, we have this concept of heaven as though it's in some completely different universe, as it were. And what God plans to do is he plans to fix this world and literally bring heaven to earth. And that's his purposes. There's a curse here of dualistic thinking. You know what dualism is. It's the idea that there's a spiritual that's good and then whatever physical is bad. And it has been a problem in philosophy and in religion all through time. But sometimes we inadvertently, I think, we inadvertently reinforce that kind of thinking. So whatever is in the world is worthless and is, is not worth anything at all. Anything that is physical, God doesn't really care about because after all, the spiritual is what matters. But what God plans to do, and I'll show you in the text this morning, what he plans to do is he plans to take all of this that is so broken and pervasively affected by the curse and he's going to refashion it and remake it in a way that is glorious to where this ends up becoming heaven, if I can say it that way. And I dare say we don't think of it that way. But that's what God is going to do. Of course, this means a radical renewal, which is exactly what we're going to find in our text. And it's beyond our complete comprehension. This, there's a total reversal of this world. And like many scriptural truths, listen carefully, we can't understand this all comprehensively, but we can and should know it and affirm it truly and certainly. 
This is God's agenda. This is God's program. And before I move any further, let me give you a good word. Because when God makes something new, it stays new. You know that problem of when you get a new car and the first scratch you get on it? And the way it tends to wear out and it loses that new car smell. You know that phone that you enjoy, that technology that just, okay, I finally have the latest technology. And that lasts about six months until you hear the announcement that the new model is coming out. New doesn't last in this world. That's part of the curse. But when God makes something new, it stays new. And what we have to look forward to is this eternal newness. It's this new experience that will somehow last eternally. will never grow old. Never grow old. So what happens is that when Jesus makes all things new, first of all, What the text tells us in verse 1 is that we will experience a new kind of realm. A new kind of realm. It's really a, a new kind of universe, as it were. This is all brand new. A new kind of realm. Look in verse 1. John says, Then I saw a new heaven. Notice that it's singular. We tend to use the term new heavens. And the word heaven is often used for the sky. It's used for outer space. It's used for the current abode of God. But in the book of Revelation primarily beginning here in chapter 21, it's singular. Heaven is heaven. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now, what does that mean, the sea was no more? In this new heaven, there won't be evidently oceans or seas. At least that's what the text says. It is true that the sea in the ancient world especially, it was kind of shorthand. It was a code for rebellion and chaos and danger. The sea represented hostility to mankind because it was a dangerous place. Foolish people have boats and go out on the ocean. Those of us with common sense, we stay on solid ground. In the book of Revelation, you see hints of this. In verse 13 of chapter 20, it says the sea gave up the dead who were in it. In chapter 18, in the morning over Babylon, there are dangers on the seas. And remember in chapter 13, out of the sea came the Antichrist, the beast. He rose out of the sea. So especially in the ancient world, the sea was the source of danger and hostility and chaos. Now, if you've never been through a flood, you don't know about this. But our friend from Houston, who is here with us this morning, she had her home literally destroyed to where they were boating on the second floor of their home during Harvey. We were spared, because God is kind to faithful people, but her home... (laughs) Somehow when you go through a flood like that, you're no longer enamored with the wonder of water. We experience that personally. And so surely this is to some degree symbolic. The point in the scripture is that there's this sense of the sea being a place of danger and chaos. But I want to tell you, as we'll see over the next few weeks, in the descriptions that follow, there are no oceans and there are no seas. There are only rivers and springs of water. But the point of this 
You say, well, how can I imagine an earth with no seas, with no oceans? Because God is completely remaking and redesigning everything. And so you cannot gauge any of this according to our current creation-grounded natural laws. If you're a physicist, you have to set some of that aside as you read Revelation 21 and 22 because God sets some of it aside in the eternal age. And what we find is that there's this new realm that we're going to experience. It's a result of a complete makeover. Now, I'm not going to deal with the issue that some believe that the entire universe will be destroyed and recreated. I believe it will be completely undone and remade. And I have reasons for believing that. But good believers, good interpreters have a different take on that. But look back in chapter 20, because Dave dealt with this last week briefly. But look again at verse 11, because here's where this happens, evidently. This, this complete changeover, this remaking of creation, is referenced in chapter 20, verse 11, where John sees the great white throne, and it says that in that great white throne, as it evidently it appears, from his presence, the one who sat on the white throne, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And the New Testament has a reference to this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, there you read these words, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You say, well, can you explain that to me scientifically, Pastor? And my answer to that is no. But I know that the God who created this universe is able to do what he chooses with no limitations in creating a new heaven and a new earth, and that's what the Bible teaches. So watch this. There is a sense of discontinuity. It will be different in many ways, but there's also a sense of continuity. To me, the analogy is what we are promised about our physical bodies. Our bodies will one day die if Jesus doesn't come back. But somehow in the power of the God creator that we serve, our bodies will be resurrected. And so they will be new bodies, but evidently they will be the components of our present body, but miraculously fashioned and glorified like the body of the Lord Jesus. And that seems to be what God's going to do with creation. He's going to take the stuff of creation He's going to melt it away, and then he's going to refashion it in a way that is beyond our comprehension, yet it has these promises that we'll see over the next few weeks in these chapters. And the point of this is that this is salvation history. This is his cosmic agenda. God's agenda is about more than just saving you from hell. As much as he loves you, and as much as this is what Jesus died to accomplish, that's not merely what God is doing. What God is doing is he's regaining and recapturing, as it were, not in the sense that he was ever powerless, but he's recapturing and redeeming and refashioning and reforming this world back to glory. And that's what he's doing, and we will be part of it. God's glory, expressed in literally redeeming fallen creation, shows us, watch this carefully, God does not fail. 
Now, remember how we've said many times, if you take a screenshot of any particular point in history, you might be able to argue that the appearances lead us to believe that God has failed. You take a screenshot of any particular part of your life, and it may give evidence that God has failed. But you open up His Word. By the way, His Word is always the source for our ultimate truth. You open up His Word and you go to Revelation 21, and the message screams from Revelation 21 and 22, God will not fail. And that's a message for us to take away today. That message should strengthen us. It should stabilize us. It should steady us. Regardless of elections, regardless of disease, regardless of brokenness, regardless of betrayal, our God does not fail. And Revelation proves that. When Jesus makes all things new, we'll have a new kind of realm. We'll also experience a new kind of home. A new kind of home. Look at it in verse 2. Look at the glory of this promise, this new home that we will have. John says, and I saw the holy city. This city is holy. Uh, Like Dave talked about last week, the white throne. uh, The throne is white because it's it's symbolic of its holiness. Well, the city is holy. It's a new Jerusalem, it says in verse 2, as opposed to that old Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem was flawed. It was flawed with sin and rebellion and bloodshed. You can go there today and see it. It's It's a glorious historical experience to see, but it's a flawed, broken city filled with darkness in many ways. But this is a new Jerusalem. By the way, there's also a contrast in Revelation to Babylon. Remember, Babylon is the organized opposition to God, but there is one day going to be a new Jerusalem that is ruled over and dwelt in by God himself. But it's a city. It's a city that has people and it has life and it has activities. We'll look at that over the next couple of weeks. This new Jerusalem, verse 2, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now let me just suggest to you, I don't understand this, but when it says prepared, the implication is it's been prepared. What did Jesus say? He said, if I go away, I will prepare a place for you. Now I don't know what it means that the God who can speak creation into existence has taken over 2,000 years to prepare us a place. It must be glorious. And the city comes down out of heaven, in other words, to the earth, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And there are spiritual implications of that. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But the reality is, think about a bride. There are at least two truths about a bride who is adorned on her wedding day. That's the time of her ultimate beauty. It's also one of the greatest treasures on earth. There's nothing that could be valued more than a bride who presents herself to her husband. So there's value, there's treasure here, there's also beauty. And this is the way the Bible, the language the Bible uses to describe this new home that we will have eternally, this holy city, this new Jerusalem, which will be in the new heaven and the new earth. 
So look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle of God, is the idea of the word, the tabernacle of God is with man. So here's a new city, this Jerusalem, we call it heaven in our contemporary language. But heaven, Jerusalem, it's not the entirety of the new heaven and new earth, because the city comes to the new earth, but it is clearly, as we'll see over the next few weeks, the center of the new earth. And it is the place in which we will dwell eternally. More than that, God dwells there. And God dwells there with his people. The people, the people of the city, the language is interesting, the city and the people are the bride. So which is it? Is it the city the bride or the people the bride? It's because the city and the people are together. The people are identified by their city. The city is identified by its people because there's no longer any fault. There's no longer any, any inappropriateness. There's no longer any fall. And so there's this identity of, of social connections that we are together with one another. We are together with our God. He dwells there. It's a new kind of home. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that this is part of God's story all along. Go back with me to the garden. What was God's intention in the garden? To be with his people. Chapter 3 says that God walked in the cool of the garden, in, in the garden, in the cool of the day. He was to be with them, was his intention. The fall happens and disobedience and the curse comes upon the earth, and then you have God dwelling, especially we see it vibrantly with the people of Israel, his nation. Remember, there's the pillar of fire and the, and the, and the cloud, and his presence is with him. And then he designs the tabernacle, and he gives it. And that tabernacle is the same concept in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It uses this same language, tabernacle, this tenting, this temporal location. And that tent is the place where God's glory would fill. So God wanted to be with his people. But you see, in all of this, since the garden, since the fall, in all of this, there's a hindrance to it. There's this danger to sinful people, and, and God manifests himself only in appearances, not in his fullness. And so there's, there's always a limitation. There's, if I can say it this way, there's always a sense of distance. Even God who loves and even God who forgives, there's this sense of it's not quite what we want it to be. And then God gives the plans for the temple in Israel, and it's the same thing. His glory fills the temple. But remember, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And so the people were separated from their God. But then the glory of the incarnation, Jesus comes, and the same word, the idea of tabernacling or tenting, this vision, it's in John 1.14 where it says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, it's the idea of pitched his tent among us. It's the same concept. And so Jesus comes and Jesus, as we'll see in the next few weeks as we begin to sing the songs, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So God is still with us. And God is with us in a new way in the incarnation of Jesus. But Jesus physically isn't in the room this morning. His spirit is surely here. God's presence is here. But what God intends to do is in that eternal age, he will dwell with us and it will be our home there will be the personal dwelling 
of resurrected, glorified saints with not just Jesus, our Savior, but with the God of the universe, God the Father, with God the Spirit, the Trinity. And there will be unbroken fellowship. We will be together and we will be home. And what this is, is it's full circle. We get to the eternal age and God dwells with His people in this holy city and it's full circle back to the garden where He created Adam and Eve to be with them. A new kind of home when Jesus makes all things new. A new kind of realm, a new kind of home, but also there's a new kind of love. If you pick it up in the middle of verse 3, you'll see this emphasized. He will, there it is again, dwell. It's the idea of tabernacle with them. He will tabernacle with them, and they will be his people. Now, in nearly all of your Bibles, if you have footnotes, in most of our Bibles, down at the bottom, it says some manuscripts say peoples. And a couple of translations translate it peoples. It seems to be more likely the Greek text, plural. I'll talk about that in a moment why I think that's important. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself, note the emphasis, the word himself, it's not absolutely necessary in the sentence, but it's added for emphasis. God himself will be with them as their God, a new kind of love, a new kind of relationship, a new kind of intimacy, a new kind of wholeness. But let me back up to that reference that they will be his people. There's no question that God has his people who are eternal, but the implication here mirrors chapter 5 that we looked at months ago, where in heaven there are people of every tribe and language and people and nation. There are peoples still in heaven eternally, and what that means at the very least, it may mean more than that, but at the very least, you recognize what that means? Is that you retain your identity all through eternity. There's not some kind of because sin goes away. Sometimes we, we, once again, we have a hard time getting our minds around this. We don't know what the resurrection body is like. We can't imagine this eternal earth. We can't imagine the curse being removed. And so sometimes it, it's as though we're, we're just kind of zombies that have no personality, that have no history, as it were. Just That's a strange term. I'm, I know zombies, like redeemed zombies uh, all through heaven. But we tend to think of it that way. But the, at least an implication of this is in the eternal age, in the holy city, there will still be the peoples of the earth. So your ethnicity, your race, it will continue into glory. It will be completely redeemed, completely made new. And we will completely be one and yet, nevertheless, there will be this healthy and wondrous identity that God has designed that is so often presently, it's tainted by our sinfulness, and we get confused about all of these things. But the implication is, even into glory, it won't just be one amorphous, homogenous kind of existence, but there will be this creative, vast diversity that God has built into the world right now. It will all be glorified. God's intention for us is to love us, to be with us. His intention for us is relational, it's connected, it, it's, it's one-anothered, if I can use that term. 
We will one another one another all through eternity without any fault, without any shortcoming. No one ever left out. No one ever misunderstood. No one ever marginalized. And not just with one another, but with our God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternally so. God is with us, and that's the point. Unending fellowship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, like many things in Scripture, the best way to understand this is to contrast it with something that's vastly different. And if you think about the difficulty of goodbyes in this world, especially what appear to be in this world permanent goodbyes, the pain that that brings. And there's almost none of us here who have been untouched by that, where we had to say goodbye to someone Even worse, we didn't have the opportunity to say goodbye to someone who's no longer here. But this will be a home that never ends. It will be an existence, an intimacy that only, the implication seems to be, only grows through eternity. Because we remain finite, God is infinite, and so our knowledge of Him and our love for Him and our existence with Him and our fellowship with Him and therefore with one another will only grow exponentially forever. It's a new kind of love. When Jesus makes all things new, it's a new kind of realm, a new kind of home, a new kind of love And then you're waiting for me to get to it, aren't you? Verse 4. It's a new kind of peace. I could have said comfort, but I think peace is what you have here. Lay your eyes on it again with me. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, if you think about this text that we've just looked at, I read that unpleasant text that Dave had to deal with last week about the lake of fire. And the end of the kingdom, before that, he talked about the warfare of Satan. The book of Revelation has all kinds of bloodshed, all kinds of heartache. History has all kinds of conflict, wars and rumors of wars. And we can talk about the nations Or if we wanted this morning, we could talk about our families, couldn't we? And there's conflict and division and a lack of peace that is part of the curse and it's part of this brokenness that pervades everything around us. But what this text tells us is back there in chapter 20, verse 11, that reference in 2 Peter 3 where everything is remade, where Satan joins the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire, where God judges rebels and unbelievers eternally, and they are separated from him and from people who are saints, we will experience a kind of peace. Death will be no more. Pain will be no more. And that's what this text is saying. Death's final death brings about a new order. It's the removal of the fatal infection of evil that began with the workings of Satan and especially in this world with the fall. And so it's put in incredibly beautiful and personal language. He will wipe away, verse 4, every tear from their eyes. This is the personal tender love of, watch this, think about it, try to imagine it, 
God the Father removing every aspect of conflict and hurt and pain we've ever known. Like a mom who reaches down and wipes the eye of her little one. That's the peace that we will know. You've probably heard people speculate on why there are tears in heaven. I don't think this means there are tears in heaven. I think the point of it is there are no tears in heaven because God has removed the cause for all the tears. The emphasis is not on remorse that some suggest will exist in heaven, but rather it's an emphasis on God's eternal and personal comfort and especially the suffering we've gone through in our lives. Think about those seven churches reading about martyrdom. One day God will remove all of that and He will wipe away the tears. And then there's specificity because it says in the middle of the verse, and death shall be no more. Can somebody say amen? Neither shall there be mourning, because that goes with death, nor crying, that's the kind of wailing that goes with despair, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. All the pervasive effects of proud rebellion, these things pass away. You recognize the story of the Bible. An enemy has done this to God's world. My favorite funeral sermon to preach, and I'm trying to decide whether to tell you because I may want to preach it here sometime, but if it's your funeral, you won't hear it, so I guess I'll tell you now. My favorite funeral sermon to preach is Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? He was getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. He had all power over death. Jesus wept, not because of the unbelief of the people around him, not because of the crying, all these ideas about why Jesus wept. Jesus wept because this is what the evil one has done to his world. He experiences in the death of his dear friend what the evil one and the curse brought into his creation and in his human nature. He's overwhelmed with grief and sorrow about that. One day it will be set right. Because he will not fail. And all of the cursed effects of sin will be abolished forever. And by the way, we don't say that objectively because you recognize that you participated in those sins as well. That each and every one of us, our rebellion, we eagerly dove into that rebellion and our sin. It's not as though we're standing innocent saying all these other people have messed up God's world. If we understand the gospel, we're saying we messed up God's world. But one day the cursed effects of sin will be abolished forever. And at this time that we're reading about, that time when the eternal kingdom begins... The evil one and all of his stooges and death and hell and the sea and the grave and rebels, they're forever banished in the lake of fire. And we will experience a new realm and a new home and a new love and a peace we have never known. I need to remind you this morning, 
lest you don't make the connection. Those promises are only for people forgiven by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. This is not some blanket promise for everyone who's ever lived. This is not some payback for people that really tried their best and were really good neighbors. The people who are with God are the ones that have found forgiveness for their guilt and their sin, and that forgiveness is only through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. And if you've never, in a personal and real way, if you've never yielded your heart and life to God, acknowledging your guilt and placing your hope and faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, you have no ground to hope or look forward to these kinds of promises. And I call you to faith today. Because these promises are only for those who are forgiven through Jesus Christ. So you recognize what this is. This is the final, complete, total realization of the kingdom of God. After the rebellion in the garden, after all of what we call the Old Testament, after Jesus in the church, after the thousand-year kingdom, finally, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, on earth, yes, To a degree, that's been true in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. But once then everything is remade, it will be true on earth eternally in a new earth and a new heaven. What a day that will be. We used to sing that song when I was young. What a day that will be. When my Jesus I will see. all the darkness around us is gone and the sin and the violence and the lust and the pain and death. And this is what we should long for because listen carefully. This is what we were created for. If we don't hold that truth tight and close, we're missing our truest identity. This is what God made us for. He made us that He might dwell with us forever. And if we find ourselves not valuing the glory of these promises, it may be that we're worshiping at idols that are like dime store trophies that are throwaway mementos instead of the ultimate treasure of the universe. We were made for this. He desires to dwell with us. And what a promise that is. And so that's your takeaway today. Heaven will be God with us forever. That's heaven. That's the new heaven and new earth. That's the promise. That's, can I say it this way? It sounds crass, but can I say it? That's the payoff. That's the payoff. God with us forever. May through His Spirit, may He give us a passion to treasure that above all things on this earth. Let's pray together.
Father, we're not adequate for these things. And we confess there are great mysteries here we don't understand. If I have spoken words that fail to reflect your truth, may you both rebuke me and remove those thoughts from the minds of my hearers. Make us faithful as we think about eternal things. And help us gauge our lives today, our opportunities, our temptations, the blessings that you pour out, the pathways you open for us. Help us gauge all of these things with eternal values in view. Thank you for these promises that one day we will know a new realm and a new home with you, a love that is beyond our comprehension and peace that we long for when Jesus makes all things new. In his glorious name we pray, amen.